one of the things I want to do as your pastor is to continue to shepherd us as a faith family to become as faithful to Christ and become as much like Christ as we can. And one of the things I find interesting is how organizations make declarations of how they're going to shape and mold their people. Okay, what are you talking about? Well, you can see it in the hallways on a bulletin board of middle schools. You can see it framed on fraternity house uh, mantles. You can see it stenciled on the boardroom walls of the local businesses. And you can see it signature, on the signatures at the bottom of people's emails. That organizations seek to create or to shape a certain kind of people. Well... It has only taken 10 years of me being here at Westwood that a church member gave me a document that has strong statements of dogma written across the page. It's called the Auburn Creed. Now, before half of you want to celebrate and the other half of you would like to crucify me, I want you to know, as a, I'm a Kentucky fan at heart, okay? This is not an endorsement, okay? If you're upset over what I'm about to read, you can email me at rickswing at gowestwood.org. I, read, I came across this Auburn Creed declaration, and I thought, oh, this is really good. Even though I don't affirm or so, celebrate or affirm. I'm like, okay, you, you, you get the point. Here's what it says, a portion of it. It says, I believe in work, hard work. I believe in education, which gives me the knowledge to work wisely and trains my mind and my hands to work skillfully. I believe in honesty and truthfulness, with which out I cannot win the respect and confidence of my fellow men. I believe in a sound mind, in a sound body, in a spirit that is not afraid, and in clean sports to develop these qualities. I believe in obedience to law because it protects the rights of all. I believe in my country because it is a land of freedom, because it is my own home that I can best serve that country by doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with my God. And while my opening illustration is a painful one, it drives home the point that, that schools, Fortune 500 companies, sororities, are seeking to shape a certain kind of people. Well, where does that instinct come from? Where do organizations get that desire to seek to shape and to mold their people into a certain shape or type of person? Well, we know where it comes from. As followers of Jesus, we know that the Lord is the one who is shaping us. That Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew, he predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son. It is the mission of God to make you like Christ. And as those who are image bearers who reflect what God is like, we too seek to shape and to mold people into a certain form. Well, what is God seeking to Form us like? In fact, is there a certain mandate or a command in which he is seeking to make us or shape us? Well, the answer is yes. And we find out what that looks like in Matthew 22. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew 22. Last week, as a faith family, we looked at the Great Commission. 
not in Matthew 28 or, or Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but we went all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where we see it has always been the heartbeat of God to make a people through whom Abraham, the blessing would come, his name is Jesus, who blesses all the nations. Indeed, we kind of saw how the Great Commission is driving us to our mission statement as a church, which is this, Westwood exists to invest in people who will impact their world for Jesus. This is our true north. This is who we are. This is what we are to be about. We are about making disciples. We invest in people. That's discipleship. Through teaching, through encouragement, through prayer. We are encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. We are investing in people. Who will? There's an expectation. That is, those who are poured into with the gospel, you will go out and share the gospel. The second part of that statement is to impact their world for Christ. It's evangelism, discipleship and evangelism. They hold hands. They go together. That's who we're seeking to be as a church, as faithful to Christ and his word as we can. But we do it ultimately not for the name of the fame of our name. We're not doing it for a brand. We're seeking to do it for the glory of God, for Jesus. And so we saw last week, we saw the the Great Commission. That is what we are to do. This morning, I want us to take some time to look at the Great Commandments, which is telling us who we are to be. Here we are in Matthew 22, and Jesus is within the last seven days of his earthly life. He's already had his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. He's already healed the sick. He has healed the lame. He has spoken life-altering truths. He has been confronted by the religious leaders of his day, these Pharisees and these Sadducees who are rising up against Jesus. We see back in chapter 21, even through chapter 22, where Jesus tells these parables, these stories that are against these guys. And he so works it up that they get angry. So we see in Matthew 22 where these Pharisees, they approach Jesus and they're trying to not only confront him, they're trying to take him down. They're trying to stop him and try and embarrass him in front of the crowds. They're they're, they're seeking to humble Jesus, which by the way, never goes well. Well, Jesus angered these Pharisees who then responded by sending their JV team, their disciples, verse 16, to go and question Jesus with a question about paying taxes. Well, Jesus slam dunks all over them and they leave uh, him amazed, verse 22. Well, then like a WWE tag team, the Pharisees step out and on time, the Sadducees now come in. Two groups that do not like each other, but they have one thing in common, they both don't like Jesus. So then the Sadducees now come in and they're trying to take down Jesus. And they set up this case study scenario about marriage and remarriage and these brothers and whose wife is the brother. And it's this really convoluted story. And Jesus responds so beautifully and so perfectly that it humbles the Sadducees. They walk away discouraged and the crowd is amazed. Verse 33, and when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So now the Pharisees are about to enter back into the scenario. The Sadducees are tagging out. Pharisees are tagging back in. Verse 33. I'm sorry, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? 
He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. The Pharisees are a group that prided themselves as those who keep the Old Testament while simultaneously policing others who did not. Well, here in the text, we see one expert in the law who tried to trap Jesus into identifying what's the most important command out of all 613 laws that are given by Moses. I want you to notice in the text not only what the greatest commandment is, but what this means for us. I want you to see first that to obey the greatest commandment, we must first love Jesus passionately. Love Jesus passionately. Verse 37, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Jesus responded to this expert in the law by pointing to the Shema. Okay, Kenneth, what is the Shema? The Shema is a declaration that devout Jews would recite at least twice a day. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 and 6 where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Now these Pharisees had already stated those, that phrase earlier in the morning. It was part of the rhythm of what they did as devout Jews. They would recite it to remind them of the main priority of God's people. We are to love God more than anything. That word for heart that Jesus uses there, it speaks to the emotions. And we love God with our emotions. That word for soul addresses more of the will. It's the seat of the interior of your life that makes your decisions of how you respond. Well, the response that God is looking for from you and from me and from all mankind is love. But it's not a partial love. It's not a half-baked love. It's not a fractional love, not even a limited love. It's an all-encompassing love that God is after all of your hearts. He's after all of your soul for you to love him with all that you have deep within you. But you see, you and I, we can't love God with all that we have. You see, apart from God changing our hearts, we can't do this. You see, every human heart is in rebellion against God. Romans chapter 3, verse 11 says, There is no one who seeks God. You see, you and I have the inability to love God with all we got. In fact, there is only one who has ever loved God perfectly, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the one who loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly. And he loved God perfectly on your behalf because he knows that we can't. And he knows that we don't apart from him. On our own, we don't see God. On our own, we don't love God. But when we hear the gospel, when we hear what Christ has done for us, when we realize that though our sin condemns us, Christ took our condemnation for us at the cross, it's then that God changes our hearts. 
when someone told you the good news that though your sin has separated you from God, God sent his son at the perfect time who goes to the cross, dies in your place so that you don't have to. That through his shed blood on the cross, you can be forgiven of all of your sin. This is the gospel. When someone told you that and you believed, he changed your heart. You see, I think 1 John 4, 19 says it well, that we love because he first loved us. You were loved by God long before you ever even thought about him. That God demonstrated his perfect love for you in the cross. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love, his perfect love. That even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That even while you and I were shaking our fists in his face and we were pursuing our own thing and living for sin and self, living as little idol makers, following our own things that we worship, God still pursued us and he still loved us and he proves it through a bloodstained cross. The blood of Jesus is where God goes on record of how much he loves you. So much so that Jesus pays the debt that you could not pay. And he gladly absorbs the wrath of God for your sin. And he's motivated by love for you so that you might in turn love him. And you see this this love that we have for God, it's, it's founded and it's based upon the gospel of who Christ is and what he has done for us. But you see, you can't love God perfectly on your own. But Jesus loved God perfectly on our behalf And when we look to him by faith, he gives us an ever-increasing love for God. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. He says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, as you and I not try to muster up love for God, not as those who pull up the bootstraps on trying to force ourselves to love him. Rather, we yield ourselves to the Spirit. And we submit to the Spirit who pours God's love into our hearts, which then in turn compels us to love him back. It's not by trying harder. It's about trusting more. It's leaning not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways, acknowledging him, submitting your life completely to the work of the Spirit who has poured God's love into your heart. And you see, God loves you so much that he rescues you through the work of his Son so that in turn you might love him passionately, that you might give him glory because you're the one who's madly in love with him. The person God is calling you and I to be is to love Jesus passionately. But the second thing we see in the text, that to love God with our heart, soul, mind means we think biblically. We think biblically. Look at verse 37. He says, you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Now, in the Western context in which we live, we give far too much credence and value to emotion. You see, you and I, we live in a culture that says, if it feels right, then it is right. Well, the Bible doesn't give us that kind of instruction. 
In fact, the Bible says we can't trust our hearts. The human heart is deceitful above all else. Every day, your heart lies to you. Your emotions will lie to you every day, which is why we can't be those who walk by emotion. We walk by faith, by trusting in the truth of who God is. We can't trust our emotions because our emotions lie to us. If we followed the desires of our hearts, we would end up narcissists. We would be so arrogant and prideful and we would be constantly living for the next thrill, the next high, the next experience. And while emotions are good gifts from the Lord, they must not govern our lives. For if you make decisions and live your life based upon how you feel, you will just be like a wave crashing on the sand. You'll be inconsistent. Life will be up and down. It will lead to chaos in your heart and life. But you see, the, we are called here by Jesus not just to love God with our emotions or with our will, but also with our minds. God is commanding us to love him with a love that requires us to think deeply about who he is, about his character, his nature, his essence, his actions. That we are to be a people who love God by the way that we think, by thinking deeply. Uh, my concern is there's far too many believers who do not take time or energy to think deeply upon the Lord. Well, Kenneth, how can I learn to discipline my mind to learn to love God with my mind? Let me, let me give you a couple of things. I would say, first of all, slow down. We are living at such a fast pace. Our schedules are so chaotic. Our calendars are full. Our notifications on our phones are constantly dinging. There's this urgency in which we always are rushing off. In fact, one of God's good gifts to you on Sunday mornings is just to sit still. Not only to hear the word, but just to sit and be still before the Lord and be reminded that he is God, that he'll be exalted among the nations. He'll be exalted among all peoples. Slow down. I would say, secondly, turn off social media. Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, great tools, man, terrible gods. And as much as it's helpful to get information about what's happening in the world, it will prevent you from thinking deeply on the thoughts of God. To love the Lord with your mind. If we're always distracted, we can't give him this. I would add to that, not only to slow down, but to turn off your cell phones, but open your Bible and read. Take up the word of God. Read entire books of the Bible in one sitting. Read the word. Think deeply on the character of God. I would add fourthly, read great doctrines of the faith. Being reminded of believers who have hundreds if not thousands of years ago laid for you and I a foundation, a path upon which we walk that we're not the first ones to experience what we're experiencing, but we can know God deeper and more faithfully by standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before us, listening and learning of those who are far more wise and smarter than we are. 
take time to study great doctrines of the faith. I would add fifthly to learn to love God with all of your mind. Memorize large portions of Scripture. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. Scripture memory does not come easy to me, y'all. I wish it did. I'm jealous of people who have photographic memories. I feel like it's cheating. I wish I could just look at something and have it. But I don't. It's hard work. It requires discipline. But you see, when you learn to discipline your mind, to learn to love the Lord with your mind, it is through your mind that you are then able to live out a life that honors God. Because your decision-making, it comes through here. If you begin thinking something, you begin living in that direction. But when you learn to discipline your mind, because we have the mind of Christ, Paul says, that through the Spirit and the Word, we're able to think God's thoughts and then to live out the life that God has for us to live. So that when temptation comes your way, not if, when, you will be tempted whether it's a big temptation or small, when you're loving God with your mind, you're then empowered to have victory over that temptation. When Christy and I first got married, we were busy and crazy, and I was going to seminary, and I was working as a student ministry intern, and I got a job at a bank as a bank teller on the campus of the University of Kentucky. And for whatever reason, during the summer, college girls thought that a bikini was proper attire for walking into a bank. Okay, now if I can just make a a, a clear declaration. A bikini is the same coverage of underwear, okay? Let's just, let's keep that in mind. And so as they would walk in, I had a decision I had to make. And so here's what I would do. I would begin quoting scripture. I would bounce my eyes away, and I would quote Job 31.1. I've made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look lustfully at a woman. I then thought of 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee all forms of sexual immorality. I thought of Psalm 19, verse 14. I turned it into a prayer, and I said, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I thought of Genesis 39 of Joseph who's grabbed by Potiphar's wife in which he says, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And as I'm doing the bank transaction, my eyes are looking elsewhere and I'm quoting scripture and I'm seeking to discipline my mind so that I might love God right here. You see, it's learning how to think biblically that the way that you view the world is not based upon how you feel, it's based on what is true. It's based on what God has given to you in his word. And the more you spend time in the word, God not only teaches you what to think, but how to think. My concern is that many may be well discipled by CNN or Fox News. When you watch a lot of television, especially what's happening on the national media right now, they're doing a phenomenal job of making disciples. They're teaching people what to think and how to think. Unfortunately, it doesn't align with Scripture. And if you find yourself spending more time sitting on the couch or on your phone listening to what other people are saying than you are in the Word, don't look now. You're going to begin thinking things that are not true. You're going to see the world through the eyes of a political perspective rather than the view and the perspective of God. 
And as your pastor, I want to so saturate your heart and your mind with as much scripture as possible because I want you to think the way that God thinks. Because as you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you'll be conformed into the image of Christ and become more and more like him. So that when you're at your business meeting and you're tempted to make a shortcut or cut corners or to say something inappropriate, the word of God comes into, into play. You go to Philippians 4.8, which says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, you think about such things. You become one who takes Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that says, do not be conformed to this age, to this world, the way the world system works but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. Well, what happens when you do that? He goes on to say that you may discern. Oh, there's a gift. Discernment. You can discern the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. If you want to know what to do, how to do it, how do I respond? Renew your minds. You love God with your heart, soul, and your minds. You begin to learn how to respond to people. You can read situations. You have discernment as you abide in Christ. You abide in the Spirit as the Word of God takes root in your heart. So Jesus is laying out for us what really is for us as a faith family our core values. To love Jesus passionately heart, to think biblically, mind, and then thirdly, it's to live missionally, hands. It's to live missionally. Jesus goes on to say in verse 39, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Loving Jesus passionately, heart, thinking biblically, loving God with your head, living missionally, hands. Now, if you take just a moment and you think about the Ten Commandments and their order, the first four commandments really address the first part, loving God with your heart. And if you think about commandments five through ten, it's about loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is summarizing not only all 613 laws that Moses has given or the 10 canons, the Old Testament we see in the 10 commandments. Jesus here is breaking it all down into these two simple commandments, which are really just one. They hold hands together. Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19.18 here in which he is practically applying the law. And he says, if you don't know what the law is telling you to do, love people. Now, let's be careful here. We have to note the progression that Jesus is making. Love for God comes before love of neighbor. The order and sequence matters. You see, love of God leads to love of neighbor, not the other way around. Love of neighbor does not come first, it comes second, because love of neighbor is the overflow of your love for God. First, in 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. 
John is saying that we can know that we have come to life in Christ because it's proven by our love for people. You can tell the depth of your love for God on how well you love people. You know that person who's just really annoying? That neighbor where you're just like, oh, I'm going to go back inside. The depth of your love for God is seen in how well you love people. And if you do not love people well, it's showing a reflection of how deep your love is for the Lord. You can say, oh, I love Jesus. But if you slander, if you gossip, if you are malicious towards other people, John says you're a liar. In 1 John chapter 4, he says, if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. It's those who say, oh, I love Jesus, but live like hell. John says, you're a liar. You're lying about the gospel. You can say what you believe, but you reveal what's true with your life. By evaluating someone's life, you can see what they truly believe. You can see the depth of someone's love based upon their life, based upon how well they love people. And as followers of Jesus, as you and I grow in our love for Jesus, in our hearts, our souls, and our minds, it then is going to be translated into love of neighbor. We're going to begin to see people around us like, what's different about you, bro? Something's changed. The answer is Jesus. As your love for Jesus increases, so does your love for neighbor. And it's hard, y'all. People are messy and complicated and annoying. And guess what? So am I. And so are you. And yet Jesus still loves us. There's times in which our lives are really messy and complicated and you're just like, I just, I can't do people today. And that's the time in which you need to lean heavier into Jesus and say, God, give me grace to love this person who is extremely unlovable. And the Spirit loves to answer that request to bring you more annoying people. Because he's conforming you into the image of Jesus. I can't wait to get to heaven and ask Jesus how he dealt with complicated, messy people. People are always asking for something and giving nothing. How did you do that? That's what you and I get to deal with. But let me ask you this. For our faith family, in spring of 2022, how can we live this out? What does it look like for us as a faith family to not only obey the great commission, as we saw last week, but obey the great commandment that we see this week? I want to lay out for you what our staff has been working on for several months of an initiative that we are going to be doing together as a faith family. It's going to begin next week where, Lord willing, we're going to begin a sermon series through the book of Acts in a sermon series called Sent. We're going to see God's heartbeat of getting the great commission and the great commandment to the nations through the local church. 
It's gonna, I can't wait to unpack this great New Testament book together. But from that, we're going to be soaking our time together as faith family in prayer. Prayer is what we're going to be getting on our hands and knees and our faces. And we're going to be praying specifically by name for unbelievers. When we come into our worship gatherings, especially over the next several weeks, we are going to be praying specifically by name for people in your life and in my life who do not know Jesus. And we're going to be praying for God to transform their hearts. If we want to see God do something only he can do, we've got to hit our knees in prayer. He's the one who works. He's the one who saves. And so we need to be crying out on behalf of friends and neighbors and family and coworkers who are far from God and pray, God, would you open their hearts to the gospel? God, would you rescue them and save them? We see this heartbeat in the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, in which he is praying, God, I earnestly pray for the salvation of the Jews. He's praying for unbelievers. God, draw them to Christ. Open their eyes. Open their hearts. Help them to believe. We're going to do that together as a faith family. And from there, we're going to be bringing to you four I words that are going to be progressive in their nature of what we're going to be doing over the coming months. Well, Kenneth, what are you talking about? Well, in the month of February, we're going to be challenging you to initiate. We're going to challenge you to meet your neighbors. And you're sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, uh, that sounds like crazy. Did you know that according to the art of neighboring, one out of ten people can name all eight of their neighbors around them? One out of ten. In fact, Pew Research recently revealed that 95% of Americans can name all of their neighbors. I'm sorry, cannot name all of their neighbors. So let me ask you real quick. Name for me all the neighbors living around you, around your house or apartment. Can you name them? Some of you are sitting here thinking, oh, don't you dare quiz me. What we're going to do in February is we're going to challenge you to initiate, to go next door with cookies. What are you talking about? We're going to be challenging us as a faith family to the great cookie adventure in which we're going to be challenging you to bake cookies at your house and you take them to your neighbors. If you have children or grandchildren, let them be the ones to take it up to the front porch because who's going to turn away a kid with cookies, right? And we want to challenge you to go to neighbors with cookies and say, hey, listen, we want to introduce ourselves. We're the Bruces. We live right over here on this house. We've not met you yet. We've been living here for X number of years. I'm so sorry we've not met you. We want to meet you now. Can you tell us your name? And we want you to begin to initiate a relationship. Okay, it's very simple. This is a layup, y'all. If you want to be a great team, you got to hit layups. This is a layup. You go next door and you hand them cookies and you initiate You begin a relationship. If anything this pandemic has done, it's only isolated people more. We're a community-driven people. God is a communal God, three persons and one God. We are image bearers, therefore we reflect community. We've got to be bringing people out of their houses to begin making relationships, forging relationships. Can I let you in on a secret? Social media is not real life. It's just not. And people can hide behind their avatars. It's time to get out from behind our screens and get in people's faces. Begin to develop a relationship. And you can initiate it simply through cookies. All right? So it's something simple. It's something easy. But it's a way for all of us to seek to engage people around us. So get prepared. 
We're going to be challenging you in the month of February to go to your neighbors and to get to know their names. All right? March. Here we go. It's the word include. It's the word include. We want to challenge you to eat a meal with your neighbors. Not only do we want you to take them cookies, we want you to open up your dining room table. We want you to invite people over to your house to sit down and have a meal. It's amazing how eating a meal with someone breaks down all of these barriers and walls. If we're going to be a people who are a great commandment people, it means that we're going to be willing to open up our homes, open up our dinner tables, and over a plate of spaghetti and French bread, we're going to begin making friends. Now, this was common sense, ordinary stuff that our grandparents did in their sleep. They did it all the time. We as a culture have gotten away from that. But these are the basics, the fundamentals, and not only what it means to be a good citizen, but this is how we're going to engage our neighbors with the gospel. They're probably not going to come here just on a whim and hear the gospel. They've got to see it and experience it through you. And so that's what we want to challenge you to do is in the month of March, we're going to go from taking cookies and initiating a friendship to inviting them to your table. You're going to be thinking, ah, I don't feel comfortable about people eating at my table. Fine, go out to eat but go and eat a meal with your neighbors. We've got to be breaking down walls and barriers that have been set up not only by the pandemic, but just by life and busyness, slowing down and developing a community, engaging people who are far from God by spaghetti and French bread. In April, here's the next step, is to invite. We want to encourage you to invite your neighbors to come and sit with you, specifically at Easter. Easter is a day in which most unbelievers are wide open to an invitation to come to church. And we want to encourage you to do that. It's not only through the cookies you're going to initiate the relationship. You're going to be including them at your dinner table. We want you to invite them to come and sit with you. Not just come to church and they sit over here and you're over there and you're like, hey, what's up, deuces, you know. No, sit with you. Build that relationship. You invite them to come sit with you in your life group. That any week, we want to get back into this culture of inviting people to church. There's this, uh, this understanding that like in the midst of this pandemic, like people don't want to be messed with. They need to stay at distance. Say, listen, people need the gospel. They need community. They need love. They need you to reach out. So we want to encourage you, invite people to come sit with you. Hang out in the atrium until they show up or drive together, caravan, come and sit together. Invite them to sit with you. I hope you know my heart as your pastor and whoever's up here bringing the word. The gospel's gonna be presented. We're here to make much of Jesus. And I know what a sacred trust it is for you to invite friends and family to come. And so we're not gonna do anything to make you think, oh my goodness, what are they doing? No, we're gonna make much of Jesus. And we're gonna point to him and invite people to believe. Easter is an incredible time in which we're gonna have all kinds of services in which we're going to invite people, hey, come and sit with me in Easter. It's going to be awesome. You don't want to miss it. And then from there comes May. It's the word impact. It's from there we're going to challenge you to tell your story, to share the gospel with your neighbor. You've already built the relationship. They already know you're a believer because you've brought them here to church with you. We want you to take the next step in opening your mouth and telling them about Christ. Some of you are thinking, Okay, I was good with the, thirst, the first three. This last one, I don't know about this. I'm not an evangelist. Well, here's the good news. Yes, you can. In fact, we're going to train you. Starting the first Sunday of February, 
the entire month of February in every life group from fourth grade all the way up through senior adults. We're going to be teaching and training every person how to share your testimony, how to take the story of how you came to faith in Christ and you leverage that to point people to Jesus. You're sitting here thinking, I am terrified to share my faith. Well, guess what? You're in good company. All of us have this fear. We want to take away the fear. We want to equip you so that you can have confidence so that when you get for your neighbor, you can have that gospel conversation. How cool is this? How great would it be is if you begin leading your neighbor to Christ and then you get in the water and you help baptize them? I mean, like, yeah, listen, man, they come to faith in Christ. Man, let's go. Let's celebrate that. And guess what? I'm going to get in the tank with you and I'm going to help baptize you. And we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done in your life. And what we're looking to do here, y'all, is a Matthew 22. And it's a Matthew 28. It's loving our neighbor as ourselves. And the most loving thing you can do for your neighbor is tell them about Jesus. And what we're doing is we're laying out before our faith family a progressive plan in which we're hoping to take you from just taking cookies to where you're building the relationship and you're leading them to Christ. How awesome would it be is if you begin being a catalyst in your community and neighborhood in which you're bringing people to faith in Jesus left and right. And watch what God's going to do. Bathed in prayer, we're seeking the Lord. Before we go talk to, tell people about Jesus, we're going to talk to Jesus about people. And then we're going to say, God, would you work through me? And I can't wait to see what God's going to do. In fact, it's the impact point that we see all throughout Matthew 22. And it's this. Open your heart your head, and your hands to love God and your neighbor with all you got. Now that sentence is really bad grammar, but it's great truth. Open up all that you are and say, God, I want to love you with all that I have. And y'all, because someone else loved God, they loved you. And they told you about Jesus. Who later on, hundreds of years from now, is going to be a follower of Jesus because you were a good neighbor today. Investing in people who will impact their world for Jesus. That's who we are. That's what we do. We give our lives to making much of Christ to those who do not know him yet. I'm not sure about you, but I remember what it was like to be lost. I didn't come to Christ until I was 18 years old. I remember groping in the darkness, trying anything and everything to satisfy the deepest longings of my soul until I found Jesus. Many of us have neighbors who are doing that exact thing. You get to be the means, the hands and feet of Christ of pointing people to Jesus. Because God, he's making a new kind of people. People who are marked as different. Not stenciled on walls or sorority houses, but upon our hearts. A people who love God with everything we got.